This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David. Today's show, we have Ryan John King, who is the co-founder of Foam. This is a project that we've been watching for quite some time. And uh, to give the listeners a brief overview of what Foam is... Foam has produced what they call a proof of location protocol, which empowers a permissionless and autonomous network of radio beacons, offering secure location services independent of external centralized sources, such as GPS, through time synchronization. Basically, if you were just a layman, you had no idea what the hell I just said. Think of everything that you know in terms of Google Maps and Waze and spatial kind of technology and location and just throw it on its head. This is really awesome stuff. This is really high-tech stuff. This is you know the way that Ryan and the team are thinking about things in terms of location is amazing. The industries that it can potentially affect include everything from supply and logistics to even insurance and so many other different places. We had a great conversation with Ryan about all of those things that Foam is doing. We had a great conversation about how Foam can interact with different protocols, how it can interact with things like Augur, just an all-encompassing conversation about the the underlying technology that Foam has and what it can do in terms of all the different applications that we have out there. I remember a few months ago, I took some time and I was thinking about the future and I thought about how Foam could be used with Augur to create new prediction markets. Lots of different things you can do with Foam. So Ryan gives us an update about how the project is working, where they're currently at right now. And so also, we found it really interesting. Ryan's gotten some inspiration from gaming. Um, he talks about Switch and about how he's thinking about how games can come into play here, which we loved. So enjoy the conversation. Um, on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor. And remember that nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. Today, we have a great show. We have Ryan from Foam. Ryan, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Great. Uh, I was talking to Ryan that Amanda and I have been watching Foam for the last year. A lot of investors were talking about it. And in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the things happening on the crypto side, it is a super interesting project. And what you guys are building in terms of the the consensus algorithm and the the type of technology that you're deploying is super interesting. If you can give the listeners a general background on you and also on what Foam is, that would be great. And then we've got a lot of questions to touch on. Uh, sure. So my name is Ryan. I'm a co-founder of the Foam Protocol and CEO of Foam Corp. Uh, at Foam, our mission is to build a consensus-driven map of the world. 
uh, and the project is kind of in three different elements. Uh, the first is called the cryptospatial coordinate, and this is on a geolocation standard. So how do we actually encode geolocation into smart contracts in a way that's interoperable? So we have an open standard for that. Uh, the next element is called the spatial index visualizer. So if you have geo information in a smart contract, you can then render it on a map. So this is kind of a visual blockchain explorer. We like to think of it as a cross between a Bloomberg terminal and Google Maps. And so these first two elements are general purpose for any developer to utilize if they want to have spatial tools in their application. And the third element of the project is proof of location. And this is where the foam crypto economics come in uh, with the foam token. And proof of location is on verifying if something has been in the real world where it claims to be uh, on, on chain. Uh, we started the project in early 2015 and have been developing it since. So excited to dive in. So pretend that I'm five years old and I have no idea what you just said to me. Unpack a little bit more, kind of go from a sense of, I know what Google Maps are, I know how to use Waze. What is this? How do I use it? Why would it be important for me to use it? Yeah, sure. So we were coming uh, thinking about building spatial applications using blockchain technology. And as a starting point, we realized that none of the standards that have been developed um, in industries that exist today exist in a blockchain uh, space. So we decided to start developing some of these standards. Um, geo applications influence uh, our lives every day. So whether we're using Google Maps for navigation or uh, Waze or things like Snapchat Maps, um, they use a combination of either geographic data in a database as well as real-time location from something like GPS. And so just from a starting point, not only are there not standard ways to develop spatial applications with blockchain, but all the existing kind of databases are either closed off and are paid to access, like Google Maps data, or still you have to pay to access open source data like OpenStreetMap from a provider, like something like Mapbox that checks that data for you. Um, so we're trying to bring in uh, geospatial data for blockchain applications to reference uh, with new kind of mechanisms to incentivize adding that data from a, in a crowdsourced way, as well as curating and keeping that data up to date. So um, walk us through a little bit more about the actual proof of location process. So how does it work? You know, like, is it hardware based? Um, I know that on your website, you mentioned that having synchronized clocks um, time synchronization is quite a big, important underpinning. So if you could just explain a little bit more about that. Sure. So for us, uh, we have two kinds of proof of location, what we call static and dynamic proof of location. So static proof of location is currently live and has been deployed to the Ethereum mainnet um, under the product name of the foam map. And on static proof of location, that's on verifying things that don't move around. Uh, so that's points of interest data on a map. And with that, we use a token curated registry mechanism, which is a way to maintain a list on a blockchain and use tokens to either add information to that list or dispute it and challenge it. So we currently have over um, 9,000 points added to the map by cartographers and a percent that have been voted off um, through this mechanism. So we have that currently live of testing curating geodata that doesn't move. Um, but when we move into the dynamic proof of location, that's on coming to consensus on things that do move around, whether that's a person or car or a machine. Uh, and with that, we want to make basically a completely GPS-free uh, terrestrial-based alternative uh, using low-power radios. And the way GPS works is that they synchronize their clocks up to a nanosecond-level precision and broadcast the time. And if you can receive at least four, you can trilaterate your position. 
Um, what is missing in that equation is a way to speak back to the system and generate a proof uh, or a receipt of that you actually interacted with those GPS devices. So we want to incentivize uh, basically location service providers to run low power radios and run this time synchronization protocol. Um, and the physics would be similar to GPS, but the difference would be we opens a marketplace for bi-directional communications so that people receiving the location uh, signals can also speak back and generate a receipt or a proof that would be cryptographic to them and verified for fraud. Um, yeah. And I'm just take it. Oh, sorry. Just I wanted to take a quick step back because this is technical um, and it's revolutionary. And so what is your background and how did you actually come up with this idea? Um, my background in terms of formal education is in economics and political theory. And I was a scholar on, on kind of the Middle East and was very involved in things like the Arab uprising. So studying like protests and policing patterns and where global developments are happening and how these kind of spatial international economics impact those uh, economies. So coming out of that kind of educational background, I went into the world of architecture and was uh, studying in postgrad work at Columbia University. And this is around the time Bitcoin was gaining a lot of attention in around 2013. And within the architectural and urban design world, there was a kind of revival of thinking about new financial models of how to you know, build buildings or address the city. And so I started thinking a lot about um, these discussions about protocols with financial incentives, like blockchain-based and applying them to different kind of urban proposals. And about that time I met my co-founders, uh, one is Christopher, he's our CTO, and he also had a background in working in architectural design uh, as a geometrist at the firm Foster & Partners in London, working on projects like the Apple Campus. Uh, but he's a mathematician and was one of the first employees at the time at Consensus and wrote the Haskell Ethereum client. And so we connected um, early on then, and our third co-founder, Katya, was an architect as well. She's currently our chief creative officer. And so we first started actually working as architects, um, doing architectural competitions that had blockchain technology into the proposal. And the first that we won uh, was based in New York City with the New Museum for a, a street festival. And we built a physical installation of the blockchain out of massive foam blocks. So this is where the name foam space came from and gave out tokens to everyone who came uh, at the time on Counterparty, which is a Bitcoin a protocol to try to capture the community of people who used that temporary spatial deployment of architecture to then capture that community through tokens. And we did a number of other kind of architectural based projects exploring uh, the physical ramifications of mining, for example. And this was in 2015. And uh, while working together on those projects, we realized there was really a need and opportunity to develop a full-fledged spatial protocol um, based in blockchain technology that can enable a suite of applications. A bit of a sidebar, but I love that you mentioned Counterparty because I'm currently sitting on a large amount of Pepe cash that I'm waiting to be able to turn into XCP so I can finally offload. So if the crypto market ever returns. <laughs> well, there are some uh, coins on Counterparty still somewhere. Yeah, sit sitting on some rare Pepe's. Um, but circling back um, to some more of the technical stuff. So... One of the things you mentioned that is really a core component of making sure that proof of location works is the idea of, you know, these the synchronized clocks and devices. So how do you go about synchronizing? Are you using something like, um, you know, so Solana, for example, um, has like an, an internal time measure where it's, uh, I, I guess, like 
proof of, I, I don't remember actually what they call it off of hand, but um, where that they have basically an internal system where they synchronize clocks or using like atomic clock synchronization, because it sounds like if it's off by a nanosecond, it could potentially have negative impacts to the network, right? Yeah, so we need a nanosecond level time precision to get something that translates to like sub five meter accuracy. So that's either competitive or better than GPS. Um, I think in, I'm not that familiar with Solana, but I believe they're trying to keep a global time that all nodes in their system can reference. Um, where it's a bit different in Foam, where we have these node operators, which we call zone anchors, and at least four of them can basically establish what we call a zone of coverage. And you need at least four, um, similar to GPS, because you need uh, time for X, Y, Z, and a fourth for checking time uh, errors. And so these zone anchors, which can be these low-power um, radios that are accessible to consumers, they would first stake tokens into a service-level agreement, uh, basically attesting to that they're going to run this protocol correctly. And then they run locally a time synchronization protocol over radio. Um, we're developing a Byzantine fault-tolerant time sync protocol um, based off of research done by NASA. And so to be an operator, they first need to stake tokens um, into the system that they're going to be running it correctly. And then they're running over radio this BFT time sync. And there is basically this zone is establishing a quorum over time and space in their zone. And they would be synchronized. They can have atomic clocks on them, but they would be synchronized to a nanosecond level precision and basically be maintaining a quorum of the time local to their zone. And locally, we use a tendermint based consensus to kind of keep logs of the time sync happening to that zone. And then that is checked for fraud by a verifier and ultimately posted back to the parent blockchain where rewards are distributed. And so you can have one zone in New York and one in LA. So they are not synchronized with each other, but they're maintaining locally a quorum on time sync in their area so that the system works for people interacting with them. So every zone um, that isn't connected will basically be maintaining time sync relative to itself. Um, but then if you have kind of contiguous zones that overlap, you would have more of a larger local time for that area, if that makes sense. So to the layman, or should I say layman, but to someone who is obviously very intrigued by this, but obviously the technicals are fairly technical, it sounds like a mesh network. Am I correct? Are you effect Is that basically what you're effectively building as a mesh network? Uh, a mesh network, yes, uh, with the single purpose of solving uh, or tackling the location issue head on. And so this mesh net has one purpose of maintaining synchronized clocks and broadcasting that information. So anyone who receives it would be able to derive their location from it and then back. So the zones can grow in numbers of pairs and it can be viewed as a mesh net. And so with mesh networks, the way that we are starting to get more compute power just in our phones these days um, and some of the other protocols that have been trying to do that, you can do it off of your phone. Can you basically do it on your phone right now? Um, hypothetically, yes. Uh, our protocol is radio agnostic, but we're very interested in these low power wide area networks, which are new to IoT. And specifically, we're utilizing one called LoRa. Um, all of these low power radios are competing to be in the phone of the future, um, or there can be some sort of attachment that you can communicate over Bluetooth. So ultimately, we do imagine that consumer phones have compatible radios or whichever become the market preference foam zone anchors could adopt to. 
Um, but right now, standard iPhones come with a GPS receiver, so you can only receive those GPS messages. You can't speak back uh, to the GPS, and phones today only then have Bluetooth, which goes only about 30 feet, so that's not really ideal for our zone anchors to be on Bluetooth because you would need so many to cover a wide area. And phones today have Wi-Fi. So <clears throat> at the moment, it's not exactly out of the box that iPhones would work with this kind of system. Uh, but we're taking great steps to develop the software agnostic to what radio it would eventually use. Um, and so the idea is that whether those radios are come built into things like bird scooters or jump bikes or different cars because they're very cheap or, you know, consumer phones eventually adopt these low power radios as a new class of receiver they include out of the box. Um, so when you think of the idea of phone adoption, though, I, I mean, one of the two... GPS, right? So are you concerned that there could be potential centralization risk with like putting all of this stuff on an iPhone, for example? Uh, only as a bottleneck for adoption, but if we had early users that wanted to be customers, so we have a class of user as the location service provider running these gateway node zone anchors, and then their customers are these location customers that want to purchase a claim about where they've been. So that customer could be a car or a person on their phone. In early stages, these users might need a specialized device, um, but as a corporation through different partnerships with telecom companies or following the market trends, devices may have those radios built in, but it wouldn't necessarily block people testing the network at the beginning. So to, to get more into the, the weeds on this, how are you actually distributing the, the radio beacons? Is it similar to kind of like what CASA is doing in terms of selling nodes? Does, does a user or someone who wants to participate have to buy a node from you or a beacon, what you would dis, uh, design as a beacon? How is that process? What does that process entail? Yeah, so as I mentioned right now, what is launched so far on mainnet is the static proof of location. So that is curating these points of interest. And then the bridge between the static and dynamic is something called signaling. So right now on the phone map, you could add points of interest or you can signal with tokens and you can define a radius of the area you're signaling for and deposit tokens. And what you're signaling is that you want this future service to be in that area. And there are mining rewards for running these radios and those rewards will be weighted by where the signals are. So if you look at our map today, we have a heat map of those signals and you can see for example, in US, um, Silicon Valley or SF, Phoenix and New York are probably like the top places where people are signaling that they want this service. And so those are either going to be community members running it themselves or they're just trying to attract people to run it there. The idea is that the hardware itself would be consumer based. So anyone could buy or build their own node and download the foam protocol software in the same way you could permissionlessly join the Bitcoin network. Um, but it's very likely that us ourselves will be streamlining uh, access to hardware and developer kits and selling it. But the goal is that it's open for anyone to build their own device and join the network as well. Uh, but we're not currently at the stage where we've deployed the hardware. So one of the things that was always so interesting to me about Foam was some of the use cases that you guys had been thinking about. So with geospatial data, with mobility, with insurance, the insurance one was really interesting because with fraud, you know, that's happened, you know, if you or you say you were in a car accident at XYZ place and it was actually, you know, your sister driving the car in ABC place, et cetera, et cetera. How do you talk to us more about the use cases and how you've actually been kind of visualizing the use cases of the phone protocol into the future? 
Oh uh, yeah, great question, and probably one of the ones we get the most on. You know, what's the most killer app or killer use case? And for us, we think the answer really is location itself. Uh, it's such a crucial primitive use in so many applications uh, today. And so, just by providing that infrastructure, applications can start to define the logic of how they want their users to present their location claims. Um, so, just even within the blockchain space, you can think of a few where you could use a system like this to enforce a geographic distribution of miners or validator nodes. Um, or, for example, in something like Filecoin, you know that your hard drives are on different, your files are on different hard drives, but you don't know if those hard drives are actually in the same building or spread out. So there are some blockchain native ideas that you can think of, but more broadly speaking, it opens up an array of opportunities where you can influence, let's say, a geofence for voting or for if you were managing a fleet of cars and you wouldn't allow them to leave a certain area. Or if you're running, let's say, an Uber app, that driver would have to purchase X amount of presence claims along their route and present it to the app to be ordered to get paid. Same goes for some sort of delivery scenario. Um, so we really think that there's like a long tail of examples. Uh, one really quick one is like an insurance for a train ticket and you're standing on the platform and if you can prove that you're there and the train isn't, you could be automatically refunded. Um, when looking at things like gaming, we've spoken with people from Niantic at Pokemon Go and they said they've lost out on a lot of revenue opportunity because they wanted to partner with local stores that operated as Pokestops. So if somebody visited the store um, because of the game and then bought something, the Pokemon Corporation could get a percent of that. But due to the inaccuracies with GPS, as well as the mass spoofing that players um, pursued, so a large members of the Pokemon gaming community would spoof their GPS so their character could be anywhere in the world, um, they couldn't pursue that kind of revenue opportunity. So whether it's in advertising, um, you know, tracking where people are, uh, fleet management, kind of industrial use cases of if you have IoT sensor data and you're trying to buy it in a marketplace, if you could <coughs> have a certificate that it actually was where it said it was, that data may be more valuable. Um, and so for us, we work with organizations like the Trusted IoT Alliance, um, Mobi, which is a mobili mobility consortium of enterprise companies and blockchain uh, startups. And so we just see a lot of potential that if you have this infrastructure and primitive for verifying location, it can be plugged into all these kinds of use cases. So a lot of the use cases you just mentioned have a heavily B2B component, right? They, they seem like large enterprise level uh, adoption of this that would, would bring efficiencies to business models. But thinking about the consumer side for a second. So one of the most pervasive market narratives has been discussion of privacy and privacy trade-offs, right? Um, and whether or not privacy really matters for people if convenience is a factor. So how do you think of privacy of this uh, geographic data? Um, is it up to the businesses that are using it to, you know, properly permission who can see, you know, whether or not I'm in the right location to vote? Um, or do you think that it's something you'd be interested in at the protocol level? Um, so something that this gives you is that it puts the ownership of location data into the user's hands directly. And we've seen a lot in the sentiment shift in the news lately about issues around location and privacy concerns. I believe the New York Times recently ran an expose of all the apps that are actually logging your location data and selling it without your direct knowledge. And even more nefariously, that telecom companies were selling location data that easily ended up in the hands of bounty hunters. Um, so location data abuse um, by users is pretty rampant today, and you don't really have control on how your location data is being collected or used in a marketplace. 
So here as a customer, when you produce a presence claim and speak to a zone saying you want to buy this attestation about yourself, uh, you basically own that presence claim, which would end up as a first-class object on a blockchain. And it's been verified for fraud, and it's cryptographic. So you control it, and you control who you want to reveal it to. So if you're someone who just wants to keep a history of where you've been in the event someone challenges you in like the court, for example, you could just keep it private for the rest of your life. Um, but if you're an employer of a ride-sharing company and your job requires you to present that information to get paid, you would reveal that location information to your employer to get paid for that use case. Um, or you could just be someone collecting location data about yourself and opt into a marketplace. Um, but the idea is to give agency over these users of when they want to log their location data and when they would like to reveal it. So about two months ago, it was right after the new year, I was home reading a lot of sci-fi. I was listening to a lot of Vangelis and kind of watching lots of old sci-fi movies from the 80s, although saying old movies from the 80s really kind of hurts my feelings, even though I just said it myself. Um, and so one of the things I was I, I actually did was I wrote um, about kind of what the future was going to look like with crypto protocols, how they were going to potentially affect our daily lives. And I did that because it's been crypto winter for the last 14, 15, 16 months, whatever you want to call it these days. And so a lot of people have been so focused on the price and you know everyone's been kind of forgetting about the innovation and the, the revolution that this is all you know, kind of putting forth. And so one of the things I, I married was the notion of using things like a prediction market with foam. And so I'm curious to hear kind of what you would think, you know, if, if that actually is plausible in a case where people can start, you know, using prediction markets, using your mapping technology to come up with some new type of markets. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really intriguing idea and one we've thought about a bit and could even be implemented today on the full map deployed. So, for example, a point has been added. Uh, you could open a market on how long will this point survive on the map or will this point be challenged in the next 30 days or an area that has no points. You could open a prediction market on, you know, will any cartographers add points here um, from the signaling mechanism I described it, into our protocol. It almost is like a prediction market so that if you signal in an area where nodes then come and appear, you essentially participated in a survey. And if you had the correct answer, you have correctly attracted the infrastructure there, and you're eligible for a reward. Um, but once the full dynamic proof of location exists as well, I'm sure you can come up with many more exotic uh, prediction markets to open on other protocols. So moving uh, a step back from foam for a moment. So um, fairly recently, uh, which I think we've seen the back and forth if anyone's been on crypto Twitter. Uh, Chris Bernisk wrote um, an article called the, the Best Time to Buy and Build Tokens. So he said that basically uh, people have been shaken from the token dream because the idea has lost social momentum. It's undergoing its first availability hardening and that 95% of the tokens in the market don't work. When the next bull market arrives, the token models that are providing real utility are likely to go through another parabolic frenzy with the fodder of speculation around radical innovation turbocharged by early liquidity. So, you know, I, I think it's quite interesting because recently we've sort of seen a resurgence in these equity first models almost as a new iteration of the 
the blockchain, not Bitcoin argument. So as you think of, think through, you know, current crypto winter and long-term goals for foam in this space, um, how do you think that the bear market has affected, you know, form, foam's network participation? Um, has it inf- affected things like, you know, how you think about incentivizing the network? Has it caused any structural changes or strategy changes on your side? Um, I would say both. Yes, and both on the positive and the negative. So just on the negative, um, it's obvious bear market affects valuation of networks. And we've had multiple scenarios where someone had staked the minimum amount of tokens in a point, which is 50. And voters who participated and won, um, like the gas costs actually would exceed the reward in some of these edge cases. And so we've had people participate in the network correctly and be rewarded for that, but it actually come out on the losing end due to like valuations. So that's an edge case that will happen if the challenge is the most minimum amount of tokens, which is something that comes up a bunch. Um, and so definitely, you know, in a bull market, you just naturally can attract way more community members because they're driven by speculation and hype, but you may be able to capture them as actual users. But on the positive side, um, we the way we did our token sale in the first place was to really ward off speculation. So we had things like KYC as well as exams in place to prove you had written uh, the white paper. And there was no pre-sale or discount, so it was the same terms, uh, whether you were a firm like placeholder or someone buying $100 worth. And we also implemented something called proof of use, which meant before you could ever trade your tokens, you had to use a certain percent and interact with the phone map uh, before you could trade them. So that alone um, for us uh, weeded out a lot of people who would not be just solely interested in participating in the protocol. Uh, I think that with the bear market, we definitely had token holders frustrated with um, either the price or performance and not participate. But on the other hand, uh, we do have like a flourishing community of people who are really dedicated to the project regardless of the price. And I think that that's really shining at the moment, uh, given that it is a bear market. So we have a bi-weekly community call as well as a message board on discourse where people are you know, debating these different points or theorizing future use cases. And I think that kind of um, attitude is really rising to the top quickly given that it's a bear market. So also thinking about bear market, so I, I definitely agree. You know, One of the things that David and I have been discussing quite frequently in this space is the idea that the bear market is well, I mean, it's, it's not bear market in name only. I mean, valuations and, and um, crypto market interactions, depending on how treasury is managed, of course, uh, can heavily impact innovation. But actually, this is a time sort of for the most growth in the industry, right? There's uh, a lot of people, it's, it's time to build head down infrastructure and work and kind of come out with something on the other side. So, you know, with the, uh, the bear market, is there anything specific that you're taking advantage of? Um, no, I guess it's. A, well, I, I guess um, having eyes on the project can be both both a good and a bad thing, depending on what they're focused on. But is there any specific advantage you found to be a, being able to sort of build through crypto winter? Um, not off the top of my mind, <laughs> that comes through advantage. <laughs> no, um, that makes sense. Other than that, you know, there's a lot of other distractions of people concerned with the bear market, and so. You know, maybe people in our community are not so singularly focused on what we're doing, um, but we've definitely been pushing features uh, weekly and having an increased amount of users. So um, I would say the only advantage is really just clearing out the signal to noise of the people that you can really interact with and reach being ones that have a high signal value to the project and community. Um, and when we were you know, trying to build a community about a year ago, 
um, it was all, you know, invaded by people who were really there just for speculation. And our Telegram community at the time was, you know, loaded with those people. Um, so I guess the advantage would be that even at crypto events, it's really people only interested in technology and we're more easily kind of connecting with other teams uh, with the tools they're developing that we can utilize. Um, so it's definitely been a shift in, you know, sentiment that you can tell who's really interested in the tech and who isn't. And, you know, long term, that will definitely benefit the success of our network. I have a quick question more on the macro side of things. And so uh, we were talking about it kind of at the the start of the, the show in terms of this notion of the private blockchain kind of motif mantra happening again, like we saw in 2015. We've seen things over the last week or two in terms of face coin, if you want to call it that, JP Morgan coin. We really need to come up with better names for these things. Um, so you know, we're starting to see some corporations and some larger entities using private blockchain um, as a first step. Um, I'm curious, just as obviously you are creating a, a obviously a public blockchain, um, which is permissionless um, and not necessarily the same types of JP Morgan coins or other things that are using, you know, permissioned distributed ledger technology. I'm curious to see kind of you've been at this for at, since 2015. Do you think we're starting to do you, do you think it's acceptable that we're starting to see some of these larger entities lever public blockchains or i mean you know private blockchains right now versus public blockchains is that a first step do you think in terms of the overall kind of revolution or do you think it's it are you just kind of dare i say annoyed just at that type of uh type, that type of work right now i would definitely say i'm not annoyed but it from our point of view it seems to kind of be a, a cyclical kind of thing where we already saw this kind of movements maybe two years ago with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and tons of pilot projects being announced and uh, the co-founder and CTO of Foam and a few of our other developers formerly worked at um, Block Apps, which is one of the first enterprise Ethereum-based companies and one of the first on the Microsoft Azure platform. And based on you know our experience working with enterprise clients uh, in that outfit, we don't really ha see that much promise in you know enterprises taking this direction. Uh, but that said, because there are so many unknown unknowns with the foam radio network and how it would perform in all different environments, it's extremely likely that as we pursue enterprise partnerships and pilots, you know, all those tests networks are essentially private networks and we would definitely want to leverage interested parties that have the resources to support, you know, wide scale testing and that in itself would be a private network. And if there are clients or partners that ultimately can only use that, it's certainly possible to replicate the system in, in a closed environment. And talking about kind of closed and open environments and also thinking about interoperability, uh, I've been following Cosmos pretty closely and what they're building. Um, and, you know, in terms of different protocols working together, um, yours would be more of a spatial one, which, as we discussed, lots of different businesses could use either in supply and logistics or insurance or transportation. And if we think into the future, some of those, you know, like a Lyft, Lyft might have its own protocol um, or, you know, some sort of supply logistics like FedEx might have a private blockchain and a private protocol. Is there a way that you can envision that all these different protocols may be able to work together with Foam? Uh, yeah, definitely. For us, we're not exactly tied to Ethereum in that the protocol as a whole has its own scaling solution built in because 
when you get down to it, you have local zones running locally a protocol over radio and locally logging that on their zone-specific blockchain. And I mentioned the consensus algorithm we use for these local zones is Tendermint. So with that, we do use the Cosmos SDK uh, for development. And so you have these local zones running uh, over radio and logging their information locally on a blockchain. But to ultimately join the system, you have to stake on this parent chain, um, which could be thought of as Ethereum. So you've staked there, and now you have permission to run a local zone, and you're eligible for global rewards. Um, but for us, this parent chain doesn't necessarily need to be Ethereum. It could be a Cosmos zone. It could be a substrate parachain. It could be a Definity chain. Um, and I think all of these kind of projects do have interoperability ultimately as a goal. So if these customers are producing presence claims that are first-class blockchain objects, they should be able to be you know, transported to a private chain and have validity there as well, theoretically. Uh, but we're not tied to any specific interchain solution. Uh, our architecture is slightly agnostic, so we would like to adapt to whatever the ecosystem eventually adopts. So switching gears a little bit, um, one of the most popular segments we've been doing has been a short get to know you uh, towards the end of the show. So uh, thinking about things, you know, either in crypto or outside of crypto, we'd love to learn more about things that you're reading or music you're listening to. But before we get into those, um, have you ever seen the show The Good Place? I don't believe so. Okay, well, um, there's this idea, basically it's um, everyone's dead. Um, and they all think they've gone to, which sounds really morbid, it's actually a very funny show. And they all think they've gone to the good place, which is this perfect world that has everything exactly, you know, like balanced for them. But it turns out they're actually in the bad place and slowly being, um, again, so, so much darker than it is. It's, it sounds, it, they're sort of like being tortured by each other in these imbalances in the place. And it's, and it's a funny show, but um, a game I've sort of been playing recently with myself is whether crypto is the good place or the bad place. Um, because right now, you know, we're in this core period of innovation, but, um, you know, like, like the people in the bad place, sort of little things keep going wrong and you have to work to sort of improve on them to get in a good place. So do you think crypto is the good place or the bad place? Um, definitely a tough question. Uh, it has been for a long time the good place in terms of the uh, inter interdisciplinary intellectual kind of stimulation occurring and conversation. Um, but more and more as time lags on, uh, it's easy to almost see it as a bad place with the number of kind of nefarious projects as well as infighting. And there's almost maybe a sense going back to, as I mentioned, our developer team is functional programmers and work in Haskell. And back in the 70s or 80s, that was the most niche programming tools that can be formally verified. And what happened instead was JavaScript came and took over and everyone uses that. And, you know, I have a sneaking fear that we as the blockchain pioneers might be these functional programmers and things like JP coin or Facebook will actually be what the tidal wave of adoption is. And so it's a tough question to answer at this kind of crossroads. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just drop in and say quadriga. And I'm saying that in a very dark and draconian voice. And I, <laughs> we, we, it's, it's an interesting question that Amanda is, you know, kind of hitting on because, you know, to me and to other people, it's, I, I think we saw a lot of, Pardon my, you know, I'm just going to say it, crap at the beginning, at the kind of the middle of 2017 into the beginning of 18. But then we started seeing projects like yours, Ryan, and, you know, real projects that are actually shipping and building real code and building real use cases. You know, foam and projects like yours are kind of, you know, getting us back to the good place. Uh, so, yeah, 
happy to hear so, that. Yeah. So there, there's your little, you know, <laughs> there's your little happy stance. Um, one of the things I wanted to quickly ask in terms of getting to know Ryan is, you know, you seem to really, you guys seem to be on the forefront of a lot of innovation. You're thinking about things in a new way. You're thinking, you know, obviously leveraging things like mesh networks and building out all the spatial uh, kind of data. Um, you must be reading some stuff, you know, especially sci-fi or things that are, you know, kind of focused on that. What are you reading these days? What are some of the things that you've read over the last few, you know, months that are really kind of inspiring you right now? Um, yeah, most of my reading over the winter break, I tried to do a bit of classic entrepreneurship Silicon Valley books. Um, but most of my professional time is spent uh, digging into really the LP wound space of low power radios and like telecom space and where those spaces are heading. And there's so many competing technologies, whether it's 5G, LTE, NB, IoT, Sigfox, LoRa. Uh, and it's really fascinating space to explore. Uh, but for us, what we really gives us a sense that we're really onto something is that what we're building is based off of all these disparate parts, um, but nobody has kind of put them together in the way that we're considering it. So it can almost be seen like Bitcoin where it's quite um, simple in retrospect, but it's made up of all these kind of disparate parts that no one actually put together in that way. So when you really go deep in the IoT kind of literature, you realize nobody's talking about a fault tolerant time sync protocol and they always fall back to something in GPS or when you go into just the time sync kind of research, it's very abstract and not tied to any um, technology to implement it on. And so it's just becoming more and more obvious to us, the kind of market opportunity uh, to build a business no one else is building. Um, so I've basically been reading mostly in this kind of IoT radio space most of the time. Um, but in most recently, my free time, I've returned from a 10 year break into video games and been pretty inspired by the Nintendo Switch as a platform. and. Hell money. yeah. <laughs> Are you playing the new Smash Brothers? It's so cool. I am. I got super sucked into the Breath of the Wild Zelda. Um, and there's a lot of interesting ideas that have come out of that of ways we can experiment with games on the phone map. We already done one over the holiday break, which was a treasure hunt for NFTs. Um, and you had to solve the riddle for the right location and you can win that. And we're now looking to kind of implement different quests where you need to have a certain number of either NFTs or foam points or badges to even begin the game. And so um, it's been really nice to return to that kind of industry of video game after taking such a long break. And please, please do you know, that again. Please do that again. <laughs> no, seriously, please do that yeah. again. No, see, I, I've played Link's Awakening enough times that I, I volunteer. I, I'm not technical. Really, all, I can be your Zelda guy. If you need a Zelda advisor for the project, really all I'm good for. Um, <laughs> I finally beat the last boss in Link's Awakening without cheating. Um, and by cheating, I mean like Googling how to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> so obviously now we're going to have to add kind of what video games are you playing to getting to know our guests? Because that was, that was awesome. Um, in terms of music, I've, I've, I came, I did a lot of music, uh, before I was, you know, in always more on the investment side. And then I started doing things in crypto a few years ago, but always had music as uh, as a false stop i for people that haven't listened yet they know or that well they will know that i was a dj uh not bar mitzvahs and weddings but actually a real dj and so music has always been a really important part of my life when i'm you know at work or when i'm reading research papers or when i'm, I'm looking at an investment you know if i'm listening to certain types of music i'll obviously have different feelings and different ways of kind of being emotive is there any music that you particularly like when you're working you know building out foam I think in the last few years, I've been uh, to 
focused on foam to explore new music, but I, when working, listen to kind of things like Boards of Canada or kind of more hauntology based stuff with like old recordings or sounds kind of crusted uh, if I'm working. Uh, otherwise, I'm interested in kind of experimental electronic music. A friend of ours threw a party at Ethereum DevCon 4 called RaveCon. Uh, was that like a secret location and you had to cop through some hoops to find it. Um, but some of my friends who are DJs played there, like uh, a group called Abnesia Scanner. Um, so interested in this kind of more experimental electronic music when I'm not working. Okay, so Ryan is obviously the person that we want to hang out with now. He is obviously playing video games, music, books. Okay, you're you're definitely someone that we're going to be hanging out with in the future. Um, you know, just to wrap everything up, and we really appreciate you spending time with us today because this has been highly informative. As I said from the from the get go, we've been watching this project for the last year or so, um, and really exciting about what you guys have been able to put together so far. You know, for the listeners, you know, where can they find out more? Could they actually start testing it out? What can they do to get uh, more involved in your project? Uh, yeah, so our website is foam.space. From there, you can sign up for our newsletter. We send out updates every week and find uh, our message board, which is discourse.foam.space. And you can make an account and start interacting with our community or brainstorming ideas. To actually try what is deployed today, um, you need foam tokens uh, to interact with the foam map. And that is available at map.foam.space. Uh, we're launching soon a 0x widget into the map, so you could obtain tokens directly there. Um, but right now, uh, if you have an account on Poloniex, tokens are available there. But I would also encourage, if you're just interested in trying the app, uh, Uniswap, which is a new on-chain autonomous kind of market maker, also has Foam listed. So in a few clicks, you can get a few tokens and try out the product. And so I encourage anyone to listen who wants to try the Foam map as a cartographer to join our community, or if you're interested in uh, hosting and testing radios in the coming months. Also, please reach out. Amazing. So this was Ryan at Foam. Take a look at his project. Go to their website. This is one not to miss for sure. Ryan, hopefully we can have you back on again in a few months to catch up and see how everything at Foam is going. Again, this was Ryan. Thank you for joining us on Base Layer. Take care, Ryan. Thanks for having me.